every facet of the fashion industry, including the supply chain, is changing. In this series, we ask those on the front lines to speak candidly about the future of fashion. Each episode explores how designers, executives, and other key industry players are adjusting their roadmaps to reflect an industry in flux. In the aftermath of the pandemic, fashion is reconfiguring its way forward, and we're finding out how those in charge are adapting. I'm Hilary Milnes, and this is The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with Klarna, the leading global payments and shopping service that lets shoppers buy now and pay later. Visit Klarna.com to find out how you can increase your average order value, drive traffic, and create a smooth checkout experience by adding a buy now, pay later option to your website. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes. This week, we're speaking to three industry leaders working within fashions, garment factories, and manufacturers. At the beginning of this year, the pandemic forced stores to close, leading to a pileup of unsold inventory and a cancellation of upcoming brand orders. The fallout was disastrous for workers within fashion supply chain, but the situation simply brought to light how precarious brands' arrangements with their manufacturers typically are. What matters most is how the industry moves forward next. My guests today are Rachel Fowler, the founder and creative director at Tonelay, Jesse Lee, a former fashion supply chain manager throughout China and Cambodia, and Kim Vanderweerd, former garment factory manager. Jesse and Kim are also the hosts of the sustainability podcast Manufactured. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. Um, I'd love to kick it off by having you guys explain how your roles changed during the pandemic. I know that it's been, you know, a few long months. Um, Rachel, you're the the creative director at Tonlay, which is a fashion brand. How did your brand deal with the fallout of the pandemic? Do you want to kick off? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about Tonlay is that we actually do our own manufacturing and we are in many ways, first and foremost, a manufacturer and secondly, a brand. Um, and the reason I say that is because during this time, it became really clear that we had to prioritize our makers um, and our production in some ways, even over the brand. What I mean by that is I chose to lay off my U.S. team so that I can continue to employ our Cambodian team who are primarily responsible for the making and operations. But that was more or less opposite of what uh, most brands did because they didn't have direct responsibility for their makers. So, you know, I found my role changing into more of a you know, getting more involved on the manufacturing. So I have a really incredible team in Cambodia, but I had to really work with my team there to say, how are we going to keep this going? Because we lost, um, we are primarily a wholesale brand. So we lost about, you know, well, at first, a majority of our wholesale orders for spring were canceled. And over the course of the spring, um, people did start to come in want them. Um, but I would say we lost about 50% of our orders over the course of the spring, um, much, of, much of which had already been produced. So we had to navigate that as a manufacturer and as a brand. Um, so yeah, I, I had to take on a lot of responsibilities on the U.S. side because I had to lay off my U.S. team. And then I also had to you know, kind of figure out how to work with my Cambodian team to manage the production and manage this whole catastrophe from while being in the U.S. where the pandemic was obviously getting worse and worse. So it's yeah. been a pretty wild ride. I'm sure. And, and like you said, it, it's a catastrophe for these workers who are on the front lines and also the ones who are working across a number of brand clients. Um Jesse, do you want to talk about your uh, your perspective and and how your job changed throughout the pandemic? 
Yeah, sure. Actually, I used to work in Pactix. Pactix is a factory in Cambodia. That is also the place where I met Kim. I worked in product development for the factory. So before the pandemic, our daily job is mostly about developing all sorts of shopping bags and travel products and airwear products like cleaning clothes and bags for the clients in US and Europe. And then February and March, the epidemic in China actually eventually becomes a pandemic. There was, I left Pactix at that moment before the COVID, but I kept close contact with uh, the factory. So from what I heard and understood, actually they spent some pretty hard moments in February and March, but eventually they received some orders of facial masks. So that helps, that really helps the factory floating on the water. But then facial masks become a sort of regular business now for Pactix. However, in my eyes, we the situation is not very certain, as we don't know if the demand of facial mask will be steady or will last or not, and if the demand of shopping bags and travel products will not recover to the same level as the one before epidemic, then very quickly the factory will need to search for new clients again, and that really takes lots of time and and money. Can you describe the process of how brand clients and factories typically start their their partnerships? How do factories decide who to work with? How do brands find the factories that, that they end up wanting to to source from? And how do you see that changing at all going forward? That reminds me what Pete said once. Pete is the owner of Pactix, the factory I used to work. So he said, factory is a bank for brands. That's a really a accurate description for typical brand manufacturer agreement. So I give you an example. For instance, brands usually send Pactix a forecast of how many products they intended to produce and when they expect to receive those products. But a forecast is just a planning, not a contract. Everything can be changed. Yet Pactix needs to invest the cash alone into buying all sorts of materials and schedule production since the day of receiving the forecast. It usually takes six weeks at least for the raw materials arrive at the factory. Then production will take roughly eight weeks. Shipping to Europe or US by sea usually takes roughly another two to three weeks. And then giving another few weeks for the clients to pick up the goods from a warehouse. And then 90 days after, clients start to issue the payment to the factory. So from the moment a factory receives a forecast to buy materials, to produce the goods, to ship and deliver the products, to the clients picking up the goods, till wait for another 90 days, then the factory will get paid. It's a six-month cash in advance for a factory. Manufacturers are really like a bank lending money to brands, expecting a payback, but not always get it. Often brands reduce quantities or cancel orders without earning compensations. Such agreement puts lots of financial risks on manufacturers' cash flow. In my eyes, that is really not sustainable and that is, um, it is really very, gives lots of uh, risks and tension. And this is not exceptional just for Pactix. It's actually for, I would say, 90, 99% of the manufacturers of fashion business. 
Absolutely. And I definitely want to discuss more the the situation that that led up to the disaster and the fallout following the pandemic. Um, Before we get into that, Kim, do you want to briefly give us an overview of of your role and your perspective following the the crisis with manufacturers after the pandemic led to canceled orders? Sure. So as Jesse mentioned, we met at Pactix. I was general manager for one of Pactix's factories. And Pactix, like Jesse mentioned, is producing primarily for the luxury eyewear industry in Cambodia. And I also left Pactix in March around the same time as Jesse. But in the first few months of 2020, we were really struggling because we couldn't get any of our raw materials. Cambodia doesn't really have any fabric mills. So we import all of our raw materials primarily from China. And the pandemic was already well underway in China at that time. And so we were, our cash position was already incredibly tight because we couldn't get any orders out because we didn't have the raw materials that we needed to produce them. Then you transition to March 2020, and we had sort of more or less figured out our supply chain issues. We'd found alternate suppliers in Thailand and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. But at that point, the pandemic really started to get worse in Europe and all the retail shops closed. And then we were hit with canceled orders on the other side. So it was just like kind of a a really bad sandwich because we, you know, first our cash flow was struggling because we couldn't get orders out. And then we finally resolved that. And then the orders themselves were canceled. And in terms of how that affected Pactix specifically, I mean, We didn't really have a lot of options. Like similar to Rachel, we had to reduce hours for a lot of staff. We had pay cuts across the board for management staff and for for factory workers, for production staff. Um, And as Jesse mentioned, we ended up shifting to to, um, face mask production. But the question really is, how long will that last? And is it a viable long-term plan or not? And I, I left Pactix in March 2020 because along with Jesse, you know, one of the things that we were really looking to do was to find ways to expand dialogue about sustainability to include more supplier and manufacturer perspectives. And really, in light of COVID, the need for this dialogue is more important than ever. Mm-hmm. I think that that is one of the most important topics is you have so much focus on sustainability in the supply chain that brands talk about that the, that consumers are interested in hearing about. But at the same time, you have these manufacturers who are really squeezed and stretched really thin just to make ends meet, just to make sure that they have, uh, you know, their orders in line. So how do you see the situation that manufacturers and brands arrange that led to these canceled orders and the lack of payments? You know, is there a precedent to what happened um, around the pandemic with all of that falling through at once? Um, Just trying to get an idea of like the scope of the situation that these suppliers were dealing with. Manufacturers' daily life is like driving a boat on the ocean, coping with the um, unpredictable waves or changes in brands' demand. You know, sometimes they, they cancel orders or they reduce quantities after manufacturers uh, invested the money already. But actually, that is the daily life. Daily life is just really like coping with those unpredictable waves or storms. But this uh, pandemic is like uh, it's like a tsunami. You know, when orders canceled, revenue stopped. And meanwhile, manufacturers, especially the cut and sew factories like Pactix, needs to steal, needs to cash in advance to pay their raw material suppliers. So on one hand, the revenue already 
Yeah, and the workers, yes, because there is a running cost. Every month you need to pay facilities and the payrolls. Yeah, I mean, Pactix and all manufacturers are already in a pretty vulnerable and precarious situation even before the pandemic, right? And like Jesse says, kind of very sensitive to fluctuations in, in market demand. And then when you have pandemic and you have just total cancellation, it's like a tap, a faucet. It's just turned off overnight. You have no more revenue coming in. So that's pretty dire. I would say too, it's not just market demand. It's also, well, this country is now offering a lower minimum wage. So we're going to shift all, you know, there's all kinds of other calculations. The brands are doing various calculations, not only to increase their production, but also to decrease their costs. So if Cambodia decides, hey, we're going to increase our minimum wage, which they should do, these brands can just say, hey, I'll just go somewhere else, right? So there's all kinds of potential waves that can hit that affect. And, and I completely agree with Kim and Jesse that there's this very precarious position that manufacturers are constantly in. They can be hit by a number of different forces. And I think that the fundamental problem is that manufacturers take on a lot of risk and don't get the margins and the profit to actually balance out that risk. And also they're having to deal with this unpredictability, but not it's, it's this unequal balance of risk and reward where the brands can basically shift a lot of the risk and responsibility, which Kim talks about frequently. Brands can shift their responsibility onto the factories but then still gain all the profit when there's a profit to be had. And it really causes a lot of uncertainty for the manufacturers. Right. And you have these workers in, you know, now dealing with a lack of payments. Um, Rachel, working with your team, you said that you laid off the U.S. team and kept your workers on on the manufacturing side. So for, for you as a brand founder, what did that decision mean, you know, for the future of, of your brand? What are you now able to keep doing? What did you have to cut back on? And being able to keep those those workers busy, how does that how does that lead to the overall health of your brand? Well, I would say most of all, it gives us integrity. <laughs> um, and I think that's what a lot of brands really lack. And I think that What's really interesting now is that a lot of these brands that aren't paying their workers and that aren't being honest about what they're doing, you know, with the subsequent wave of protests and uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement, there is an, a renewed focus, I think, on racial justice, on justice in general, and also on overall systemic justice, that is, or systemic injustices that are being highlighted by the pandemic. And I think that consumers and customers are rightly so questioning these brands and saying, hey, you know, we kind of let you off the hook for a lot of stuff, but all of these things are coming to light. And I personally think that, you know, we still have a long way to go, but I do think that a lot of customers and consumers are getting more savvy to these games that brands have been playing for a long time. And I think that ultimately that is going to hurt the brands if they do not make some really drastic changes because with the inequality and inequity that's been highlighted by the pandemic, I just think that a lot of consumers and customers are done with baby steps. And for me as a brand, I think the fact that we chose to prioritize our makers and prioritize keeping jobs in Cambodia when you know, I think 150,000 garment factory workers is what I understand have lost their jobs when we made our makers the priority, 
while all other a lot of other brands were considering their makers basically not an essential part of their business, that really resonated with our customers. And I think it gives us a leg to stand on when we want to talk about, you know, systemic injustice across the fashion industry, that we're actually following through with what we say we're doing. And so, yeah, I mean, Tonelay has, you know, work to do to improve. Of course, we always can do better. We can always learn and do more. But I think that is really important for our brand going forward that even though we had to scale back to a certain extent, our success lies in being authentic to our values. And that's what brings customers to us. And that's what's going to keep customers with us. So, We've actually seen a really positive response on our e-commerce, our direct-to-consumer channels, because I think while you see some other large um, fashion companies that are direct-to-consumer kind of getting called out for racist practices or internal problems or not paying their workers and laying off unions and things like that during the pandemic, I think that we can actually talk about those things because we've been doing this work for a long time. Yeah, I I agree that customers are definitely more vocal um, in the past few months and taking brands to task. But I I think it's interesting. And I'm wondering, Jesse and Kim, if you agree with the idea that customers and their you know, attention and blowback to these issues if brands are treating workers within their supply chain fairly enough. um, Is that enough for brands to truly change their practices? Because I think you look at a situation with the Boohoo manufacturers and suppliers in England, customers are, you know, fast fashion is one of the hardest habits for customers to break. And so do you think that it's enough for the customers to you know, say, we're not going to put our money behind this um, to change this system that is, you know, very much set in its ways. Um, Kim, did you want to start? I think most suppliers would probably love to give their workers more job security. But when they get very few commitments and such short lead times, that's really difficult to do. Similarly, most factory managers that I know would probably love to pay higher wages. But when year on year you're forced to reduce your prices or else risk having your customer jump to another supplier, that's really hard to do. I mean, at Pactix, the price we were getting paid for cleaning cloths for eyewear dropped by about 30% over the last 10 years, despite significant increases in minimum wages and cost of living in Cambodia. So I think that the challenge is that these topics can be quite technical. And so explaining them in a way that resonates with consumers can also be a bit of a challenge. And I think one of the positive things that's come out of COVID is that people are are starting to maybe gain a bit of fluency in these issues and in these topics. But at the same time, I think there's a risk that end consumers will will kind of interpret what's happening as a one-time thing, as like a really bad thing that happened because of very extreme or exceptional circumstances, as opposed to like really, really trying to think about, well, how do we change business as usual? And, you know, I think the Boohoo scandal is a really great example. And I've written about this in some of my articles, but for me, you know, there was a lot of public pressure on, on Boohoo when when the scandal came out. And yet, you know, they were saying things like, you know, 
uh, we've terminated the contracts with non-compliant firms, or we're going to do an independent review into our supply chain, or we have nothing to hide. The, the subtext of all of that kind of language is that responsibility for these human rights abuses is located solely with unwieldy or unruly suppliers out to make a profit at any cost, and that the job of the brand is to do due diligence, to weed bad suppliers out. And I think this language really obscures asymmetrical power relations that underpin the fashion industry and really limits our ability to push for meaningful change. And I wish and I hope that consumers put pressure to frame these issues as the systemic problems that they are, and that we acknowledge that at least in part, these issues are driven by purchasing practices which really systematically distribute risk and reward unequally. So I'd like to see, in the case of the Boohoo example, I'd like to see them hold up a mirror and examine themselves a bit more critically. You know, will the independent supply chain review to which they've committed also include an inward-facing review of their purchasing practices? You know, what kinds of prices does Boohoo pay its suppliers? Have these increased or decreased in the recent years? And how much lead time do Boohoo suppliers get? Does Boohoo provide its suppliers with committed sales forecast? You know, these are the kinds of things I'd love to see consumers asking when we have these kind of exposés or reports. Absolutely. And you're, you're, you're very much right. And those are all great questions. I think the, the pessimist in me questions whether or not customer pressure will be enough. So, um, Jesse, did you want to add anything to that, um, especially on how, you know, what else could kind of hold brands um, feed over the fire to make them change their practices? I feel a bit complicated about these questions. <laughs> so first, of course, end consumers definitely have great powers. But a practical question is how to use that power. For instance, Kim told me once she had some friends asking her, so just to tell us, which brand shall I buy? I want to buy some clothes, but which brand shall I go to buy? <laughs> <laughs> that is a very simple but very difficult question. Honestly, I don't know. Even I work in fashion business today, I don't know which brand paid compensations or which brand canceled orders but still pay or which brand upfront cost share risks with their suppliers. I don't know because we don't often see those reports or details like, like Kim just mentioned. I think that there needs to be a fundamental value put on the actual making process. And this is, I'm going to kind of like scale out to a high level because I, I completely agree with everything that Kim and Jesse are saying. But we don't have, the fashion industry lacks a value on the actual production, right? I think we put a lot of value on the designers, on their ideas, on the marketing. You know, you can sell, in the fashion industry, you can sell a product that's not made very well for a lot of money because of the value of the design and the IP and all this that we put this. But we don't put a lot of value on how something is produced and made. And I think if we changed our messaging, the fashion industry really fundamentally valued the actual product a little bit more as well as the people who are making it. You know, again, this is a bit es esoteric, but I think to shift the value to, you know, if we could change these relationships with producers and factories where it was like, hey, I'm coming to this factory because they offer the best quality product because my customers want the best quality product. And you have a situation where people are actually competing to work with the best manufacturers and paying better prices. I know I'm talking very pie in the sky here, but I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in how we view manufacturing as something of value, that these suppliers have something 
really important to offer, not only in the quality of the product, but also the suppliers are experts in if we want to talk about building a more sustainable fashion industry. A lot of the suppliers know how to make these sustainability changes. So viewing them as a knowledge resource, as a as experts in this, rather than as centers for extraction. To, yeah. <laughs> how can we get as much out of this as possible while making as much profit as possible? Instead, treat your suppliers and your manufacturers as resources who should be invested in, who should be experts in, you know, creating the best quality and most sustainable products. And I think a lot of times it comes to a mindset switch where it's like before we can even come up with better contracts, before we can even come up with, you know, better arrangements and all these things, we need to think about what we value. And I think for consumers as well, it's like, what do you value? Do you value something that is really beautifully designed, but poorly made? Or do you value a piece of clothing that's going to last you and it's going to last and it's going to fit you for a long time and you're going to, you know, it's going to transcend season. So it comes down to a fundamental evaluation of values, which I do think is happening. I mean, I don't want to say that consumers can fix it all, but I do think that some of these systemic justice injustices are being exposed. And I do think that we need to remind, you know, keep talking about and remind people that these systemic injustices have been you know, going on for a very long time in the fashion industry. And bad contracts are just one example of how that manifests and how that plays. I wonder if there is any, if there were to be a silver lining um, in the aftermath of the pandemic for manufacturers and suppliers, does it seem like we could be moving in a direction where there is a, a power dynamic shift? I, You know, I think more people are aware of the types of terms and contracts that suppliers are dealing with and that brands have been getting away with. But I'm wondering what can actually tilt that dynamic. For me, the silver lining is that maybe enough manufacturers, like a lot of I mean, manufacturers that I've talked to have hit rock bottom. And so for the first time, there's nothing left to lose. And so that makes people a little bit more willing to come forward and to share their experience and to share their stories. And for me, that's that's the biggest silver lining because maybe, maybe that, sadly, the fact that, that people feel they have nothing left to lose means that they'll be more willing to, to share. And one thing, Rachel, I wanted to throw this to you. It's, we, we talk a lot about sustainability in the supply chain, but when, when brands are, are put against the wall in situations like this and are forced to lay off employees and their wholesale partnerships are drying up, are sustainable commitments and and priorities, especially for bigger brands that are working maybe towards those goals, but haven't really incorporated them into their brand ethos overall. Um, are, are sustainability commitments the first thing to fall to the wayside when it comes to events like this? I would say for most brands, yes, because they do consider sustainability to be a bonus rather than an integral part of their business. But I do believe that at some point in the future, and hopefully very soon, sustainability will just be a baseline as opposed to a goal, I think that it's going to be necessary as, you know, we continue to face a worsening climate crisis and social justice crisis. I think it's going to continue to just become more and more important and more and more necessary and just a part of how business needs to operate um, going forward. Because I think we're seeing, I think what the pandemic is revealing and the racial justice crisis is revealing is that 
we cannot continue to operate this way as a planet because we cannot continue to keep extracting from both people and natural resources without consequence. Um, when you extract, 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 and try to create wealth for a few people at the top, and you don't take care of all the people that are supporting that system, eventually it falls apart. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a massive crisis across so many sectors because we have operated, especially in North America and Europe, has operated with this model of just taking an extraction rather than creating a system where everyone can benefit and everyone can thrive. And I think that the business models that are going to succeed in the future are those that create shared value for everyone that actually in that create value across every part of their business for everyone who's involved from customers to, you know, staff to makers and everyone else involved. And clearly it's a very complicated value chain, but I think, yeah, to me, just looking at what the future looks like, I think we're either going to face, you know, even more destruction. We're just going to keep going down or we need to start thinking about how to take care of everybody. So I just think, I don't know, I, I am hopeful that, you know, brands especially can use this as a moment to really reassess like, hey, if we don't evolve and we don't change our ways, we cannot continue at this pace. The, the earth cannot support it. People cannot support it. So I hope they make the right choice. <laughs> yeah, that's an, an important perspective. And you can almost see it playing out with the next uh, wave or generation of executives. Um, but I think that's that's a great point to leave off on. Um, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to thank all of you so much for, for the conversation today. Thank Thanks you so much. It was, thank it was you. really wonderful to be a part of this. Join us next week. We'll be joined again by key fashion industry players adjusting their roadmaps to reflect an industry in flux. You can find all our shows from this series on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Vogue Business website. As ever, for more coverage on the future of fashion, subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter at voguebusiness.com. Our executive producer was Alad John. My name is Hilary Milnes. That was the future of fashion. Thank you for listening.